0: via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your podcast platform of choice is. Go to spyscape.com slash spyscape plus for details
1: incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome,
0: Welcome. Welcome to True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll hear the true stories behind the world's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position?
1: This is True Spies. I always used to say that the British won the intelligence war. They mightn't have won the actual war, but they won the intelligence war. There wasn't a single member of the provisional movement, the continuity IRA, the real IRA, or any of the loyalists that they didn't know about. This is
0: True Spies. Episode 34, The Irishman. Mm. Ever get the feeling you're being watched? That prickle on the back of your neck?
1: They had cameras that could read and license plate from 1.8 kilometers away. And day or night, it didn't matter.
0: Relax, you're probably imagining things, aren't you?
1: But this is 2020 now, and I dread to think what the surveillance capabilities are of units like the DET, MI5, MI6.
0: Today, the business of spying is, for the most part, pretty hands-off. But you already know that. You've seen it on the news. You've read those troubling exposés about compromised cell phones, hacked emails, and long-range satellite imaging. In movies, you've seen characters like Jason Bourne live dangerous lives on the run, constantly monitored by the all-seeing eye of video surveillance. You've listened to true spies, and chances are you shrug it off. Nothing to hide, nothing to fear, after all. And if you really wanted to, you'd know how to disappear, right? This week's true spy knows better.
1: I always said that the military are always two, two decades ahead of everybody else.
0: He was part of an organization responsible for establishing total surveillance in one of the British Army's most controversial battlegrounds. He had eyes everywhere, and he didn't officially exist.
1: My name is Sean Hartnett. I worked as a surveillance and a specialist covert and overt surveillance technician with um, Joint Communications Unit Northern Ireland, probably better known as the DET or 14INT. Amongst those who worked there, it was just known as Jacuni. And I worked there from 2001 into 2004-2005.
0: Between the late 1960s and the turn of the millennium, Northern Ireland was a battleground. Irish Republican paramilitaries who wanted to break away from the UK waged a bloody campaign of guerrilla warfare against the British Army and their loyalist supporters as well as civilian targets. This conflict was known as The Troubles. For more information... Listen to episode 31 of True Spies, Blood on the Waterside. During those three decades, technology advanced at a phenomenal pace. Think about it this way. The troubles began in the year of the moon landings. They ended the year Google was founded. That was also the year that Sean Hartnett began his training as a radio technician for the Royal Corps of Signals, a regiment of the British Army that specializes in electronic warfare.
1: I started training in September 1998. It was just on the cusp of um, the the Good Good Friday Agreement. And I suppose at that time, there was that sense of um, elation as well, you know, that finally it was going to be over. In
0: 1998, the mood had been optimistic. The Provisional IRA, the largest and most deadly Republican paramilitary group, had agreed to a lasting ceasefire. New channels of communication were opened between the North and the Republic of Ireland. Politicians on both sides of the Irish Sea celebrated a rare victory for diplomacy.
1: Little did they know that conflict would continue, um, you know, because you'd have splinter groups. I don't think they fully appreciated at the time, certainly not within mainstream politics. I know within the intelligence community, which I later learned, they were fully prepared. They, they knew that there was going to be splinter groups on, on both sides, loyalist and, and Republican.
0: Sean Hartnett deployed to Northern Ireland in 2001, a few years after that uneasy peace had been established in the region. If the accident hadn't already given it away, Sean's a native of Cork in the Republic of Ireland. He's also a Catholic. So why join the British Army? Well, it's not as uncommon as you might think.
1: We had a strong history of military service within the UK military, the British military. Um, My father had served in the RAF. My grandfather had served in the British Army. um, I had several cousins serving in the British forces.
0: But Sean's family history was, let's say, complex
1: on the other side of that i had a family who were who had been members of the provisional ira
0: we know which side sean chose but that's not to say it was a cut and dried decision as a young man studying science at university he came close to choosing a very different
1: path i got this notion in my late teens that i would you know sign up that i would uh get involved with the provisional movement thing so there was a a Sinn Féin office not far from a a pub we used to drink in, Nancy Spain's in Cork City. So I did a bit of snooping around and I I got the name of a a senior Sinn Féin figure living in not far from Cork City in a, a little town called Cove.
0: Sinn Féin was the political arm of the Republican movement. Sean was considering joining the IRA. A designated terrorist organisation with strong links to the party. If anyone could help Sean along this path, it was them.
1: And I'd arranged to meet them one Sunday morning.
0: But the night before the meeting was supposed to take place, Sean had a life-changing epiphany.
1: All of a sudden, the penny dropped. I thought, you know, I'm 19, 20 years old, and I get this notion into my head to to join, probably at the time, which is the most notorious terrorist organisation in the world. And I bottled it, um, and I didn't go. Now, had I gone, my life would have taken a very, very different path.
0: During his career, Sean made several decisions that he'd come to regret. This wasn't one of them.
1: I either would have ended up in a grave or behind bars, one or the other.
0: After leaving university, he entered a period of aimlessness that will be familiar to most recent graduates. He needed to shake things up, to get out there, to see the world. The British Army could do that for him.
1: So the Irish Defence Forces or the Irish Army, at that time you're, you're pretty much going to be doing cash escorts because the IRA were robbing everything that moved, or border duty. Whereas I knew with the British Army, I'd be guaranteed travel. You know, I'd be all over the world.
0: The vetting process was long and deeply tedious. As you can imagine, given the political situation, the army paid close attention to new recruits joining from Ireland, especially Catholics. Because of his family history, Sean had to be slightly economical with the truth.
1: They wanted to know everyone I had met, every family member. Now, considering on both sides of my family, my father had about uh, 13, actually 14 siblings, and then all their kids, and then on my mum's side, and then all theirs. And I, I was... Thinking, when I started filling all this paperwork I thought, hang on a minute. If I put in some of the names that are related to me, I'm not going to get in here. So I left out quite a few of my relatives on that list.
0: Nothing was going to stop him getting out of Cork.
1: But I, I, I kept going, I persevered, and eventually they signed me up. My first unit was at 14 Signal Regiment in Brody in Wales. So they were an electronic warfare unit Um, and there I specialised in uh, jamming and uh, direction-finding technology. My first deployment was to Sierra Leone during the, the civil war there.
0: After cutting his teeth as a radio technician in Sierra Leone, Sean served a tour in Oman.
1: And when I came back from Oman, I was due to be posted. So you're kind of rotated every two to three years to a different unit. Wasn't really sure where I wanted to go at that stage. I'd done quite a bit of travel. I had a long tour in Sierra Leone and again in Oman. So a couple of my mates from 14 Signal Regiment had gone to this place called Jacuni.
0: Jacuni. That's J-C-U-N-I.
1: Joint Communications Unit Northern Ireland, that could mean anything, right? And that's why it was called that.
0: Nobody really talked about Jakuni. Very few people in the regular army were aware of its true purpose.
1: The only things I knew were that you didn't have to wear a uniform there. You got extra pay and you got one week off in every month. So that for me sold it.
0: But Sean was about to discover that joining the unit wouldn't be as simple as all that.
1: So I remember going down to the, our kind of... Um, Line manager would have been known as a foreman of signals. So I remember going down, down to the Foz and saying, listen, I want to go to Giacuni. And his reaction was, you haven't a fucking hope. He said, your background, you're not going there. We're not going to put it in.
0: Sean would be the first to admit that he's got a stubborn streak. And that streak didn't care what one officer thought about his background or his chances of success. He'd set his course and he was going to get to where he wanted to go.
1: So I went over his head and I went to the, the OC squadron, the officer commanding the squadron. And I'd served with him in in a very small group in Sierra Leone. So I knew him really well. And he said, listen, they're not going to take you. you. You know, your background, you're not going to get there. I said, well, put me through, put me forward. If they reject me, fine. So he said, OK, put you forward. Sean's
0: transfer request was passed up to the Manning and Records Office, which matches personnel to roles within the army.
1: And they simply see a gap in a unit for a radio technician, and they see somebody coming up to be moved who's a radio technician, and they put one and the other together. So you fit into that slot, no problem. They don't look at backgrounds, they don't look at, you know, political orientation, they don't do any of that, they simply match people up with, with vacancies. So there was a vacancy at Jakuni for a radio technician, And I was a radio technician ready to move. Go, off you go. So that's how I ended up going there.
0: His training began at De headquarters in Lisburn, Northern Ireland. The HQ was known affectionately as the Arse.
1: Lisburn was known as the Arse because nobody wanted to serve there.
0: Sean was already a decorated veteran technician. But the facilities on show at De were on another level entirely.
1: Now, Jakuni's radio network wasn't like the rest of the communications network for British forces in Northern Ireland.
0: The unit's radio network used specialist equipment called high powers, signal boosters essentially. For Jakuni, there was no such thing as a dead spot.
1: So it takes even the faintest signal and converts it. So you might have a signal of less than a watt, and that will pump it out at 80 watts.
0: This cast-iron comm system was complemented by an unprecedented level of video surveillance.
1: I mean, there was hundreds of cameras all over Northern Ireland. They could read a license plate clearly on the screen. At that time, now this was back in 2001, so 20 years ago, they had cameras that could read a license plate from 1.8 kilometres away. Day or night, it didn't matter.
0: The technology was astounding. But Sean still hadn't been briefed on the specifics of Jacuni's mission. One morning, the terrifying implications of their presence in Northern Ireland were made all too clear.
1: We were shown an incident that happened uh, a few years previously where two Royal Signallers had driven into an IRA funeral and had been, had been murdered at that funeral at Howes and Wood.
0: The deaths of Corporals Derek Wood and David Howes had changed the way that Jacuni operated in Northern Ireland. It had made them less willing to accept risk. The men had driven through an IRA funeral procession. They had been identified as soldiers by the crowd, dragged away and killed. They had managed to fire off one warning shot.
1: And that was the only shot that was ever fired before they were murdered at that funeral.
0: Based on that information, the training officer had some unsettling advice for his trainees.
1: His instructions to us were, you don't fire into the air, you fire into the crowd. His motto was, it's better to be judged by 12 than carried by 6. And that was when I kind of realized, hang on a minute, what, what am I after to get myself in for here?
0: To Sean, it sounded very much like the officer had just sanctioned a shoot-first, ask-questions-later mentality. More than that... He'd just unofficially authorised Jakuni's new intake to fire on civilians. Until now, nobody had revealed the exact nature of the Joint Communication Unit's role in Northern Ireland. Now, the training officer laid their cards on the table. Jacuni is responsible for the covert surveillance and apprehension of terrorist suspects in support of police counter-terrorist operations. Note I said in support of the police. We do not share our sources. We do not share our methods. We are not a police force. We are here to gather intelligence and, where necessary, act on that intelligence. This explained a lot. It explained the fact that Jakuni had trained with weapons that weren't available to the regular army. A powerful and expensive arsenal of submachine guns, assault rifles and shotguns.
1: Their budget was massive, I later learned. It was huge. I mean... The budget for Djokouni was bigger than the entire budget for the, all the forces in the Balkans at that time.
0: Sean began to realize that he was now fighting a very different kind of war. His initial training was over, and now Jakuni's newest members were to be assigned to one of the nine subunits that made up the regiment. In army parlance, these are known as detachments, debts for short. Each detachment came with its own set of challenges, but one had more of a reputation than the others.
1: So everybody in the R said, you do not want to go to North Det. Whoever is going to get the short straw and go to North Det, you don't want to be there.
0: North Det was situated in Ballykelly, 15 miles from Derry. The city was where the riots that had sparked the troubles had taken place in 1969. It remained a hotbed of Republican sentiment. Sean was called in to speak with his senior officer it was bad news
1: sorry you're going to north Debt. and i remember saying to him okay i'll take it on the chain but what is my job and they said you'll find out when you get there
0: sean was driven to north debt by the technician that he would be replacing usually a soldier's posting lasts two years the beleaguered incumbent at the debt had only lasted nine months
1: so it was about a two hour drive from from Lisburn up to to Ballykelly where debt was based. And he said, look, it's hard work, it's never ending. He said, that week off they've told you you get every month? Nah, no chance, it's not gonna happen. He said, it's 24 seven here. It's technology that I've never worked with. And he said, it's hard going. And so all the way up, I was thinking, oh shit, what have I got myself in for here?
0: The car pulled into the barracks at Ballykelly.
1: It had been an airfield in World War II. And it was massive. And right down about two kilometres from the main gate, tucked down in this corner of the airfield, away from everybody else, there was nothing near it. It was this high-fenced compound. And we drove up to it, and he punched in the code into the keypad and this roller shutter rolled up. As we drove through, I looked around and I thought, Oh, fuck. Now I know where I am.
0: As they entered the compound, Sean struggled to take in his new surroundings.
1: There's this massive communications tower right in the middle. It's the highest, well, it was, it's it's gone now, but it was the highest tower in Northern Ireland. It was 100 metres, over 300 foot tall. And it had every kind of... Now, I was a comms tech. I knew just by what was on the tower that this this was a serious... Like, you don't have that much on a tower without something serious happening at this place. And there was two uh, helicopter pads, two uh, Gazelle surveillance helicopters there. Everything was covered. Every car was covered with dust covers, everything. And you could see people looking at you, giving you the eyeball.
0: That sense of unfamiliarity was compounded by Sean's first look at his new colleagues.
1: I was looking around and there was all these civilians looked at me, scruffy, you know, long hair, like a couple of them looked as if they were living on the streets.
0: He'd barely had a moment to adjust before he was introduced to his commanding officer. It could have gone better.
1: Put my hand out, he put his hand out to shake mine, and I said, Oh, sir, you know, I'm really looking forward to working here at Chikuni. And the first words out of his mouth are, You've got to be fucking joking me. The
0: commanding officer was a religious man and rarely swore. But hearing an Irish accent, a republic accent, Within one of the most secure compounds in the country, had provoked a strong reaction. It wouldn't be the last time. Fortunately, his day to day interactions with the CEO would be limited. The man who really ran the show at North Debt was the operations officer, the OPSO in army jargon.
1: The operations officer at that time was Colin, a um, guy from Manchester, scruffy as fuck. Um, genuinely, if you met him, you'd think mm, fairly close to living on the street, if not living on the street already. And he called me in and uh, he says, right, um, I don't give a shit about your background, he said, but every technician they've sent me up so far has been shit. I'm only interested in your and how good you are at your job.
0: Already nervous, Sean was taken around to meet his new co-workers.
1: Everybody that works on a debt has a nickname. So, you know, I was a tech, so I was Sean Tech. So if you were one of the um, intelligence officers, you were Chris Spook. If you were one of the communications guys, you were John Bleep.
0: Finally, he was brought to meet the regiment's most menacing agents, the operators. Drawn from the regular army, as well as special forces units like the SAS, the operators were the people who were closest to the action. They would be sent into the field to carry out work that couldn't be handled remotely, installing bugs, apprehending suspects, and occasionally exercising a well-honed trigger finger. It had been an overwhelming induction into the debt, but the surprises that Sean's first day held were far from over. After dinner that night, he retired to the on-site bar for a much-needed drink.
1: because we weren't allowed to socialise with anyone else. We had our own bar. And it was covered with you know, paper, newspaper clippings and stuff of, of successes that North had been responsible for. And I remember walking along and I was really curious. You know, this, this was part of my kind of heritage and I was reading them all and then I came across the one for Loch Gaul.
0: The Royal Ulster Constabulary Police Station at Loch Gall was indeed part of Sean's heritage in more ways than one. His relative, an IRA fighter named Seamus Donnelly, had died there.
1: Seamus Donnelly, along with um, a full IRA active service unit, had been killed in an ambush at Lockgall, and they had been they'd been hitting RUC stations throughout province um, for about a year. Same modus operandi: uh, digger bomb, so a bomb in the bucket of a digger. It, drive it at the um, station, bomb would explode and then they'd go in and they'd fire off um, and, and kill whoever was in there. And they'd be pretty successful at it. Um, but they'd come under the watchful eye of, of North debt And they had been tracked and an ambush had been set at Lockall. And they'd all been killed. Um, every member of the Active service unit.
0: The colour drained out of Sean's face. He sat for a minute, staring at the newspaper clipping. Then he felt a tap on his shoulder.
1: And then up behind me came Colin Upson, and he said, oh yeah, you know, Sean, that was one of our better operations. He said the SAS lads might have taken the, the credit for the for the shooting, he said, but it was a North Debt job that got the surveillance. And honestly, he could have knocked me over with a feather.
0: He hadn't realised that North Debt, the place he'd just agreed to spend at least two years of his life, had been responsible for the death of his relative.
1: Yeah, I have to say, there was a part of me saying, this isn't right, I, I shouldn't be here, I shouldn't be here at all, that this isn't this isn't what I kind of signed up for. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered, but we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber
0: for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures,
1: this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes, or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts.
0: There was no time to ponder this ethical dilemma. Sean had inherited a gargantuan workload from his predecessor at the Debt.
1: I was fitting out cars with surveillance and covert communications, rigging cameras, covert cameras, and getting the guy's body kits ready. The work was relentless. It was exhausting. Um, It just never seemed to end one operation after another.
0: This work took place within the high fences of the Ballykelly compound, and all under the suspicious gaze of some of his less accepting colleagues.
1: I'd been at the debt probably about four to six weeks, and I still wasn't trusted.
0: Fortunately, he was about to have an opportunity to prove his competence and his loyalties.
1: And I remember being called over to the operations room. I was working in, in my tech bay. So I walked across compound in and Colin Opsos says to me, right, what's the situation with the vehicles and communications? I said, well, you know, I'm still working on the cars. They're not all up to scratch. Um, he says, right, what about Coal Island? Um, what's the comms like down there and surveillance? What assets do we have?
0: Coal Island is a former mining town, about an hour's drive from North Det. The name was familiar to Sean from his training at the Ars. It was a notorious communications dead spot. Jacuni had received intelligence that members of the real IRA, a Republican splinter group, were planning to attack police officers who were patrolling the area. Somehow, they'd managed to come into possession of an RPG, a rocket-propelled grenade. If they weren't stopped, the loss of life could be devastating.
1: So I was to and said, look, Colin, this this isn't an ideal place to be carrying out an operation. Communication is poor at best and at worst non-existent. So I remember he, he turned around to me and says, right, put a plan together and fix it. And that was it, fix it. Colin
0: Opso had made his position clear. This operation was happening and it was Sean's job to make sure that the operators could communicate in the field. Sean racked his brain. How could he just magic up a stable radio comms network? Then, the idea hit him. Bad comms were still comms. The signal was still there, wasn't it? And weak signals can be amplified, if you've got the technology, that is. And if Jakuni lacked anything, it wasn't that. He made his way back to the garage and retrieved a high-power signal booster from storage.
1: So went away and I found one of the high powers put into a vehicle. It was a specialist vehicle, made completely out of fiberglass, so it wouldn't interfere with communications inside it. Um, But it just looked like a painter and decorator's van, really. prepped that, got it ready to go.
0: The modified van carrying the signal booster could be surreptitiously parked in the area of operations, ensuring total radio coverage during the mission. And there, Sean assumed, his involvement would end. He told Colin the good news
1: walked over said, right, you've got it. It's all set to go. And he says, right, get your gear together. You're going with them. You're forward mountain down to Coal Island.
0: The debt needed him in the area to make sure that any unpredictable technical issues could be swiftly resolved. Along with a team of operators driving modified civilian cars, think armor plating, hidden cameras, and covert radios, Sean set out for Coal Island. As they approached the area, comms began to cut out, as expected. Fortunately, Takuni had radio protocols that kept their interactions short, sharp and almost impossible to intercept.
1: Jakuni didn't use a normal navigation system. We had a thing called a SPOTS. So every junction, every road, every roundabout had a colour and a number. So, for instance, you'd be going from one junction to another, you'd be going from green 12 to to green 11, and then you'd move into a a different area and that colour would change. This is Bravo moving from red 12 to green 16. And the reason was is that even if somebody, now our communications were heavily encrypted, but even if that encryption was broken, you would have no idea unless you knew what those spots were, where. operators were moving from and to because it was a completely coded system.
0: The undercover convoy arrived safely at the local RUC police station. Sean and his kit were ushered into a small hut at the base of a communications tower. It was an Irish February and he could see his breath in
1: the air. It was absolutely freezing and I was thinking to myself, there's an RUC station there, really nice and warm. Why can't I go in there? But I'd been warned. You do not let the RUC near your equipment and you do not go near them. There wasn't a lot of trust between the RUC and the deck. They just, they didn't trust them at all because the RUC was prone to leaks, massively.
0: Newly installed in his frigid hut, Sean could begin the real surveillance work.
1: The surveillance operators are out on the ground and they're following a target. They'd be brought in for a briefing and they would be given the target, they'd head off on the ground. Meanwhile, back at the operations room, the operations officer is using the surveillance cameras to keep an eye on the target. And he's directing his ops around the target so that they're not picked up. And you know, you're know, you pulling at threads here. Every time he meets somebody, you, you log the car registration of that other person. And you look to see if they're going to be involved, if they're worth following. So it's a whole spider's web. You start with one piece and then you start uh, fanning out from that central target contact tracing, basically.
0: Soon enough, Takuni had identified four men who were involved in planning the rocket launcher attack.
1: So they had these guys under surveillance for about probably three, four weeks, but the last week of it had been really intense. These guys, there was four of them, hadn't been on their own for a minute. I mean, the amount of surveillance they were under was incredible. Every single movement they made was recorded, videoed, and they were tracked by the operators 24-7.
0: They had also discovered the location of the rocket launcher itself. Hidden away on the outskirts of a field, Sean had deployed operators to set up two cutting-edge cameras to watch the IRA weapons cache.
1: You know, this was my first major op. I was crapping myself. I was thinking, if this goes wrong, if anything goes wrong. And I remember the first camera coming online, straight away, no problem, clicked on. and I was thinking, yes, fantastic. And then the second one, no image.
0: While the first camera happily beamed its feed across the 40 miles to Takuni's base at Ballykelly, the second camera was dead. Sean's heart sank. Whatever the issue was, He knew that as lead technician on the operation, the blame would lie with him.
1: And I could just hear in my earpiece, Colin back at the uh, the operations office saying, Sean, get it sorted.
0: OK, so think it through. The cameras were working when you sent them into the field. The system's online. You know that because the other camera is working perfectly. That leaves one option.
1: And I said, can you just check that the camera switched on? And next you hear click, and the image appears.
0: Turn it on and off again. Or just turn it on. It works for your grandma's printer. And it works for top secret surveillance equipment too. Reassuring, in a way.
1: All I heard on the other end of the net from, from the operations room was nice one, Sean. And the operation went ahead.
0: The cameras, newly functional, picked up movement in the darkness of the field. Three of the four IRA men were moving towards the rocket launcher's hiding place. They picked up the RPG. Chikuni, and by extension the local police, had their evidence. The operators emerged from the shadows, descending on the three suspects. You're nicked. The tension finally broke. The communications network came alive with chatter. Now that they had the all clear from Jacuni, the Royal Ulster Constabulary moved in to officially arrest the three men who had handled the rocket launcher.
1: There had been a fourth man waiting in a getaway car and he had been arrested too. That fourth man, Brendan O'Connor, was later involved in another operation.
0: We'll hear more about Brendan O'Connor a little later, but let's live in the moment. The operation had gone off without a hitch. The operators melted away And soon, Sean was driving back to North Debt with a smile on his face. They could wring their hands about his accent, but after this, they wouldn't be able to question his competence. Unbeknownst to him, the operation hadn't gone quite as well as he'd thought. Most of the time, the secretive nature of the debt worked in their favor, but there were downsides, too. They usually emerged in the courtroom.
1: So they were acquitted because of notes that one of the RUC officers had made in his book, Book of Evidence, and it related to the operators from the deck. And the judge wanted to know who these men were. And when it was refused, he threw the case out of court. Even though they were caught red-handed carrying an RPG towards an RUC patrol, they were acquitted because of the mention of these clandestine operatives in the notes of an RUC officer who'd been on the case.
0: All this would emerge in the weeks and months to come. But for now, Sean was riding high on his success. So was the rest of Northedt. Congratulations were in order.
1: I remember being in the bar and Colin coming up to me and saying, listen, you'll do, you know? That's the only thing he said to me. There was no well done or anything like that. He just said, you'll do.
0: Finally, Sean felt at home. Over the next few years, He'd become a part of the furniture at the Ballykelly Kelly compound.
1: So yeah, I was I was very comfortable there and I knew my job and I knew my job well.
0: And as Sean bedded into the day-to-day routine of the debt, he found those early doubts about the ethics of the British Army's presence in Northern Ireland fading too.
1: This kind of inner conflict that was there disappeared after a while because I saw the Republican movement for really what it was, and it was it was a moneymaker, it was men trying to stay in power, we were on surveillance jobs where I watched loyalists and Republican paramilitaries meeting up together in a pub and dividing up the, the drugs territories. You know, this is the real, the real truth behind uh, this so-called, you know, Republican loyalist movements. It's not about, you know, a united Ireland. It's not about them remaining part of the UK. It's about money. It's about money and power. That's all it is. And I I learned that very, very quickly. So, you know, that divided loyalty was gone now.
0: But even with this new clarity of purpose, there were still moments where Jakuni's secrecy was a cause for frustration.
1: We were never given the full picture. You know, I remember on several occasions, in one target in particular, that he was caught banged to rights several times in a weapons hide. The guys were ready to kick in the doors, ready to, to pull him. So, literally, with fingers on triggers, ready to go.
0: Then the order would come from on high. Stand down.
1: The same guy, several times. So you put two and two together and you learn, hang on, this guy's on the take.
0: Soldiers like Sean would never officially be told the names of suspects that were acting as informants for British intelligence. Just as Jacuni refused to share its resources with the police, organisations like MI5, Britain's domestic security service, preferred to keep their top assets in-house. Some information is too precious to share. And their reluctance to collaborate with North Debt wasn't totally misplaced. Sometimes they messed up,
1: badly. North Debt was known for being the wildest of Debt's. Their attitude was, you know, train hard, fight hard, play hard. And they lived up to every one of those aspects. We didn't really play ball with with headquarters. We did our own thing a lot of the time. And I remember on, on one occasion like looking back now it's hugely embarrassing but we had an operation in place um, a very senior Sinn Féin member was going on holiday for the weekend and we had been watching his house for a long time.
0: A high-ranking figure in the Republican movement had left his house unguarded. The perfect opportunity for Giacuni to plant a listening device.
1: On any operation the lead operator has a thing called their book and everything about that Target's life is in that book. The position of the curtains, what time to get up, who calls to the house, how many times they go to the bathroom every day, when they walk the dog, uh, how long it takes to come back, every person that calls to the house, when they leave, what kind of an alarm they have, what lock is on the door.
0: Armed with this intelligence bible, two operators had entered the Sinn Féin member's house to insert the bug. Uh,
1: One in his kitchen and one somewhere else in the house which I won't mention because it might still be there. And so all went to plan, perfect operation, guys inserted.
0: Perfect might have been overstating it. At the debrief, the lead operator was asked to produce the book so that it could be updated with new information from the listening device.
1: Colin had turned around and said, right, guys, where's the book? And they looked at each other and went, well, you've got it. No, you've got it. And then panic started
0: the operators had left the
1: book in the house. He was an absolutely masterful piece of uh, insertion, except for the fact that they left all the evidence on the on the kitchen table. So this Sinn Féin counselor arrived <laughs> arrived back from his holiday to find on his kitchen table a book describing every aspect of his life, his home, his family, where they were going to, the PIN number to bypass his alarm, um, what type of lock was on his door, the position of his curtains, what time they drew the curtains, what time they opened the curtains, and he took it to the papers.
0: This was a disaster for the dead. After all, this is a unit that prides itself on secrecy. Mistakes which threatened that secrecy were unforgivable.
1: The two guys in question, the two operators in question, that next morning, both were flown out of Northern Ireland never to return, they were RTU'd, returned to unit. Career's over. Gone, finished.
0: North Det had no time to dwell on their embarrassment. Another listening device, planted by a more careful operator, had delivered some chilling intel about a planned attack on an army barracks in Oma County Tyrone. Sean was familiar with the barracks. When he'd first joined the army, his interviews had been held there. He'd stayed in the Silver Birch Hotel just across the road. This felt personal.
1: Beside the Silver Birch Hotel was a service station, a petrol station, and there was an ATM machine there. Now, there was an ATM machine on the camp, but squaddies are tight arses, and the ATM machine on the camp charged you £1.50 to withdraw money, whereas the one across at the service station was free.
0: Every month, come payday, the young soldiers would make their way en masse to the free ATM. Routine is a standard part of army life, but as any spy will tell you, predictability can be a death sentence.
1: And the real IRA had, uh, had picked up on this, and intelligence that we had from listening devices had told us that there was going to be a hit. And the plan was there was going to be a motorbike with a pillion passenger pull up outside the ATM and spray the squaddies at it and kill as many soldiers as possible.
0: A drive-by, quick, Messy, mobile. If the IRA were allowed to succeed, this would be one of the deadliest attacks on British troops since the height of the Troubles. Mindful of the stakes, North Det relocated their entire operation to their Oma barracks.
1: We had surveillance cameras outside, the operators all set up, ready to go. Um, it, was, it wasn't going to be an arrest.
0: Jacuni's usual approach, apprehending the targets and handing them over to the police, was not going to cut it here. The debt would take no prisoners.
1: One of the terrorists on the that was going to be on the job had been responsible for the death of a female RUC officer a few years previously. And during the briefing, it had been made very clear that there would be no arrest. The RUC would stay outside the cordon and it would be a shoot to kill mission. So both would die and That was going to be the job.
0: Special forces operators were manning the watchtowers. Three more armed men, disguised as civilians, moved into position around the petrol station. From inside the compound, Sean watched the road. A camera, hidden inside the license plate of a parked car, transmitted a crystal clear image of the scene. Meanwhile, a listening device had been planted inside the shed where the terrorist motorbike was being stored. As one, the debt waited.
1: So we were listening, we were listening, everything was ready to go.
0: Suddenly, the comms network erupted. The IRA men had entered the shed. Hands flew up to earpieces, fingers clenched around triggers.
1: And all we could hear was, the fucking bike won't start, the fucking bike won't start
0: the bike wouldn't start. The men left the shed. They'd missed their moment. Back to the drawing board. North debt had no choice but to stand down.
1: The only reason that those two gentlemen had lived that night, we thought, was that the bike wouldn't start.
0: But as we've established, there are many reasons for the apparent failure of an operation. In Northern Ireland, things were rarely as they seemed.
1: Brendan O'Connor, who had been the getaway driver in Coal Island for the RPG job, he was one of the uh, men inside in the shed that night.
0: Sean didn't know it at the time, but the IRA's assassination attempt was never going to go ahead. Brendan O'Connor had seen to that.
1: He had set up the RPG job for the arrest and he had been tipped off that the... Death were gonna ambush him on that job at say the petrol station. That's why he hadn't started the bike. He knew. He knew it was going to be an ambush.
0: We don't know exactly which intelligence agency Brendan had been informing for, but in doing so, he had saved lives.
1: So, you know, not always, but sometimes things make sense at the end. The reason that we had that information on the RPG job in the first place was because of Brendan O'Connor. They had repaid him by keeping him alive on the second job on the ambush job.
0: Eventually, Brendan had paid the ultimate price.
1: We later found out that in about 2010, 2011, he was kidnapped by the real IRA and murdered because he was an informant.
0: Sean had enjoyed his time at the Debt, but by 2004, the intense pressure of the job had begun to take its toll.
1: I'd been at North Debt now for for almost three years constant operations no time off so I decided I wasn't going back to a green army unit I couldn't go back to calling people sir and wearing a uniform and you know it just wouldn't have been possible I don't think I would have fitted in well so I I made the decision to leave to leave the army entirely
0: It was a tough decision to make North Dead had been home to Sean in fact he'd rarely left it Jacuni had strict rules about mixing with people who weren't in the regiment the main one being don't Once he was out, it was unlikely that he'd ever see any of his friends there again. But there was still time for a last hurrah at the debts on-site pub.
1: And so there's a bit of a speech from the OPSO and I remember going up and saying, you know, thanks very much and I've made some great friends here and listen, if I ever decide to um, switch sides, I now got all your names and addresses and I'll be sure to hand them over and, you know, I got a laugh, but they are all quite surprised that I didn't give him a a leaving gift.
0: Hmm, work leaving gifts, always tricky, aren't they? Not too expensive, not too cheap, not too impersonal, not too familiar. Luckily, Sean had just the thing in mind.
1: I remember we broke up about three o'clock in the morning or something like that, and I was due to leave about eight o'clock the following morning, I was driving home, I was driving across the border, but I got up earlier, got up about five, six o'clock and I put my rigging gear on and I climbed the mast up to the top of the mast and I took out an Irish tricolour and tied it to the top of the mast. Got back down, got in my car and I drove off.
0: The tricolour, that's the flag of the Republic of Ireland if you weren't sure. Not usually what you'd expect to be flying above a top secret British Army compound.
1: I was about halfway from the border to Dublin and the phone went... And all I heard on the other end was, you fucking bastard. And that's, that, that was my leaving gift. And it, yeah, apparently the, the commanding officer of the camp had gone absolutely fucking gag when he had seen it.
0: Sean didn't face any consequences for that particular stunt. But once he'd left the army, the pressures of his role there began to catch up with him.
1: When I left Chikuni and, and left the army, I thought I was okay. You know, I had done my three years at North, and it was exciting and it was demanding, and but I, I thought I handled it pretty well. But a couple of years after, uh, it turns out I didn't handle it that well. Um, I basically had become a functioning alcoholic, and I lost everything: lost my partner, lost my home. You know, lost yeah you know, all through through dependency on drink. Um, and for a long time, I, I, I wouldn't go and see a counsellor because I didn't think I needed one. And, um, you know, it's a, a, the, the army is a very macho environment, very male-dominated environment. So you don't, you don't show a weakness. You don't say, listen, I'm not feeling great. I want to go and see and talk to someone. That's just not done. So what you have then is a pent-up um, time bomb that goes off at some point after all these guys leave the service. Um, it's not during their service. I was fine while I was working away. You know, the pressure just seemed normal. But it's only when you come out and you're allowed to, to leave some of that steam off. You know, um, it, it, it had a massive impact on my life. And And looking back, I, I probably wouldn't have taken the job. But hindsight's a great thing.
0: Nobody is invincible. If you're struggling with your mental health, ask for help. In the United Kingdom, MIND, the mental health charity, offers a range of guidance. In the USA, contact Mental Health America. I'm Vanessa Kirby. Join us next week for another encounter with true spies. We all have valuable spy skills and our experts are here to help you discover yours. Get an authentic assessment of your spy skills created by a former head of training at British Intelligence for free now at Spyscape.com.